Hey, as you sit down, high five your neighbor, tell him Jesus is the life of the party. Jesus is the life of the party, amen? Some of you have been coming to church just waiting for me to preach this passage. This is like your life verse. <laughs> We're going to get to it. We're going to get there. Don't, don't worry. We'll have our moment. I'm so glad you guys are here. My name is Gav. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, what's up back in the cheap seats? Good to see you guys. We moved a few back in. And uh, you can look up at that TV. We're just glad. We're just glad you made it into the room. I want to preach a sermon called Jesus Life of the party. He is the life of the party. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 2. John in chapter 2. As you turn there, let me say it's been a really fun season for our church family. Uh, as our elders gathered and we're praying this last week, uh, it came to our attention this next Sunday will be our fourth anniversary, our fourth birthday. And we were kind of taking inventory of everything God had done and we're telling stories. And do you remember this time? And you remember this person and this person that got baptized? And and we're talking about the church plants, and it dawned, us for, uh, it dawned on us that last week with the launch of Lincoln, there were over 3,000 people worshiping Jesus in a City Light church that had just been planted. That's incredible. It's not just about big numbers, but every one of those individual numbers is an individual person who is walking with Jesus, we hope, or at least on their way there, learning from the Word of God, connected with the church family. And uh, now there's four churches over three towns, and Two states, if you want to get technical. It's just over the river, but it sounds more impressive. We're in two states, you know. <laughs> We're over the river, but it, I mean, it just blew us away as we thought, man, a couple of years ago, there was a handful of us up at the chapel. Chris was still saying bad words. I looked like I was 19, and we were just this ragtag crew. But man, we prayed and leaned into Jesus, and he is doing a great, great work right in our midst. People are meeting Jesus. Uh, last week in this room, there were 1,900 people in 35 parking stalls out there. So we are seeing miracles, loaves and fishes. I mean, the multiplication. Uh, God is doing a great, great work, and uh, we are just in awe. Uh, additionally, we had some good news this week uh, just regarding this local congregation. Uh, we had mentioned last year we had been trying to buy this part of the building, and then that was going slow. And uh, last fall, we announced we may be moving, you know, before too long out of here. We don't know to where. Uh, well, we had some really good news. Uh, uh, the owner has been able to get stuff kind of organized in a position to sell it. And we re-entered a purchase agreement on Wednesday. We're set to close on this space in June. So we're no longer nomadic. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. That's very helpful. <laughs> Additionally, we uh, had been looking for another gathering place out west. Some 60% of our church live, work, and play west of here. And uh, we made this decision not out of convenience that we want to make it more convenient for you to get to church, but we've said, hey, if we're the light of the world, we're meant to invite and invest, be disciples to make disciples. Uh, we need to be worshiping where we live, work, and play to uh, help invite new people in and not just drive past our lost neighbors to get to our church that we love. So we said we need a gathering place out there. And we had looked at some different buildings, and we looked at the old Hy-Vee at 144th and Center, and, and, and uh, kind of did the numbers on that last year, and uh, just turned out it was just too much money to buy this massive structure, try to renovate it, and just do a simple worship gathering it was going to be, you know, lots of money. So we said, we just can't do it. We let that go around the end of the year. And uh, some great news, the, the sellers reapproached us and said, hey, it's a big animal. What if we kept a, a little less than half of it and did our own development, and you guys just bought about half of it, and we split the cost of renovation 50-50. We thought, 
that would be incredible. All of a sudden, the numbers are cut in half. We'd be able to do a worship gathering out there and uh, have about 35,000 square feet. The same thing we have here, a mere thing out there. And so this is very preliminary, uh, but we do have a preliminary agreement to go ahead and move forward uh, with this space. So God is opening up opportunities. Now, real quick, there's a lot of work to be done and, and you know, we tend to share information and then it changes later, but we just always want to be super transparent on the front end. Um, we're moving towards this, holding it open-handed. So we still need to have a member vote in February at the end of um, or for our annual meeting. Uh, a lot of bucks to raise, a lot of work to get done to get this accomplished. Uh, but we are thrilled. God is opening up opportunities and uh, helping us to just expand this ministry and to grow into new areas. So we praise God. Thank you guys for being a part. Uh, it's going to be a fun year. 2017, we're planting a new church in Exarbin. We're running out a new gathering in West Omaha, and uh, God is on the move. And as we study the Gospel of John, I think our passage last week was very fitting. Because we talked about how the scope of Jesus' ministry was huge, ends of the earth. We want everyone to know, love, and follow Jesus. And yet, the means of his ministry was very small and simple. Disciples making disciples. He had the big, growing, expansive ministry, but his strategy never set, never changed. He invested in a few, invited, and invested. In City Light, that's what we want to do. Even in a, in a season as our church advances and grows and the scope becomes bigger, bigger we want to contend that our strategy will not. We want to invest and invite. Friendships, dinner, and discipleship. Disciples making disciples. And that's how the kingdom goes forth. And then today we get into chapter 2. The water turning into wine. This is Jesus' um, first official public ministry as he steps onto the scene in the Gospel of John. And uh, let me set the stage for what we're going to see today. Uh, just for a little bit of context, a wedding in first century uh, Jewish culture would have been a huge deal. It would have been a citywide, a community-wide festi- festivity. Everyone from the area would have come uh, around. It makes our weddings look lame. Our weddings are usually, you know, a, a, a half-hour ceremony, an hour if I'm preaching, um, and then there's a nice reception, maybe some food, some wine, some dancing. That's kind of a that's kind of a big wedding. And this day, a, a wedding was a citywide, think block party that would go for several days, maybe upwards of a week. And the host couple would invite everyone, childhood friends and, and neighbors, and they would celebrate and they would sing and they would dance. It was a, um, a ceremony that would make Kim and Kanye's wedding look small and tame, okay? This is this big festivity. And so Jesus goes to a wedding, and this is where he starts his public ministry. And he's there with his uh, new five disciples and his family. Worst case scenario happens at the party. They run out of wine. In our context, you might think, well, what's the big deal? In their context, when the wine went, ran out, the party was over. And this would have been a huge embarrassment to the host couple. They've invited all their friends and their relatives, and they're underprepared, and they're under-equipped, and they have underserved. Their guests would have been a huge social faux pas, a big embarrassment. But what does Jesus do? He comes in, he supplies the wine, and it's better in both abundance and in quality than what the host couple had provided. And here we see a picture of what Jesus does for us, don't we? He covers our embarrassment, he hides our shame, and he gives to us what's greater than we ever could have provided on our own. It's a picture of the gospel right here. And so we've got this amazing miracle done by Jesus, and I think if we just looked at the surface of the story, we would have enough to praise God for. We could sing, we could bring the band up, we could say Jesus covers our embarrassment, and he supplies. But 
But I think there's even so much more happening underneath the surface. And here's the clue. Look with me at verse 11. We're actually going to start our text with the last verse. Then we're going to go to the top and we're going to work our way. Uh, The second to last verse, verse 11 says what? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee. This is all a sign. Here's what I learned this week. Uh, The gospel writer John, as he describes Jesus' mighty works, he doesn't use the word miracle, even though that's the most predominant and common name used for Jesus' mighty works in the New Testament. Uh, John only uses the word sign. And a sign means something that points to something else. It is true in and of itself, and yet it has a greater meaning and fulfillment. And what Jesus is doing in his miraculous, wonderful events and ministries, he's pointing us to greater realities about himself. And as I started to study this text, I've read this text a thousand times, but as I dug in and got some help from the commentaries this week, my mind started to explode with all of the rich meaning and um, signs that Jesus is pointing to in this text. He's revealing something about his character. He's showing his, the world something about his ministry, why he came to, to do this. One commentator said that that word, his first sign, could be translated um, his predominant sign or his, his um, you know, signature sign. This is it. This is him declaring to the world what he's come to do. He's going to leave his calling card here this morning, and he does it at a wedding. And so let me show you um, um, three of the benefits that Jesus is showing us, that he has come to do in the world, that he's come to, to work in the lives of his people, that he puts on display at this sign the wedding at Cana. Let me show you three of them. Number one, write this down in your notes. The first thing I want you to see in this text as we walk through it verse by verse is that Jesus brings a better celebration. He brings a better celebration. Let me show you this. Look at this very start of the text, chapter two, verse one. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, so Mary understands the embarrassment of the situation. She's seen it. She knows the culture. She also understands the power that's in Jesus. Remember, she heard from the angel. She knows who she is raising. And so she gives Jesus the old pointy elbow, says they're out of wine. You know, that's your cue. Go do something. What does Jesus say? Woman, what that got to do with me? Now, now let's talk about this for a second. I don't think he said it in that tone, by the way. First off, let me help the brothers out in the room. Married men, if you're looking for one verse in the Bible to memorize, don't start with this one, okay? (laughs) I tried quoting it to my wife one time when she told me that the garbage can was full. She said, the garbage is full. I said, woman, what's that do? What's that got to do with me? She gave me that look where she puts the chin down and the eyebrows up. I said, sweetheart, it's a verse. I'm being biblical. (laughs) Didn't help my case. I said, I'm a pastor. Also didn't help. She didn't care. And so uh, let me me say this. I don't want us to get stuck in in the wrong spot. So Jesus, it sounds like he's being harsh, but don't let that trip you up. He's not. If you fast forward to chapter 19, where Jesus is dying on a cross, he looks down at his mother and he looks down at John, the beloved, and he's saying, John, will you take care of my mom after I go? And he says, mom, he's going to be like your son. And the word that he uses is the exact same. He says, woman, meet your son. It was a term of endearment. If you have the NIV, it says, dear woman, how does that concern me? So don't get, don't get tripped up in the, in, in the wrong spot. But the key comment to understanding this whole text is the very next phrase. 
Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Full disclosure, every other time I've read this until I really understood it this week, uh, your pastor is new to this game. I've always thought that meant Jesus wasn't ready to do his miracles. My hour's not come. It's not my time. I'm not ready to start my public ministry. But somehow Mary twists his arm and, okay, mom, I'll do it. That creates all kinds of problems theologically, among other things. But Tim Keller is a guy much smarter than I, an author. He helped me understand this passage this week. What he pointed out was that phrase, my hour, is a technical phrase. And it always means the same thing in the Gospel of John. It comes in five different times, and it always refers to Jesus' death. Every time he says, my hour has not come, or the Gospel writer John in narration says, Jesus' hour was approaching. Jesus' hour is the time of his death. Um, did you ever read the book To Kill Jesus or, or Killing Jesus or Killing, uh, what were the other ones? Killing Reagan. There's a Bill O'Reilly book. It's like, you know, 10 hours till his death, three hours. That's how John is writing this book. Every time he says, my time is referring to his death. If you don't believe me, here's the references. You can look them up. I don't have time to read them all. Uh, look at John 7.30, John 8.20, John 12.23, John 13, 1. Every time he says, my hour, it's a technical term referring to his death. Okay. Now, understanding that, understand this dialogue. Mary says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he answers, it's not time for my death yet. That only makes sense if you understand that Jesus is referring to something in the future that this event parallels. That this event is a parallel for and a sign to something that's yet to come. Now stick with me. Revelation chapter 19, same author, John. When he's talking about that last day when Jesus is in glory and all of his children come to be with him, there's one consummate ceremony that kicks off heaven. And what is it? It's a wedding feast. Moreover, it's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Are you making connections here? What did, what did John the baptizer just refer to Jesus as just a couple of verses before? He's the Lamb of God. All these pieces are coming together. The Lamb of God is at a wedding saying his time has not yet come, and yet he's going to show us a parable of what's going to happen when his time does come. Do you see the pieces that are coming together? This is all a sign. Jesus kicks off his ministry at a wedding because he wants to show us something about the ultimate wedding that he has come to usher into the kingdom. That he has come to bring in an even greater celebration. And so this whole thing is but a parable of his ministry. He's saying, okay, I'm on the scene now. Here's what it's about. And then he demonstrates the first introduction of his ministry. He's at this wedding, and honestly, it's pretty lame. They've been drinking the boxed wine before that, the cheap stuff. It leaves you with a headache. The music's starting to wind down. It's getting awkward. People are shuffling their shoes. The energy is dropping. And what does Jesus do? He brings upwards of 120 to 180 gallons of the most choice, most select wine. And says, no, 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 the party is not winding down yet. The party is just getting started. And he takes the, the party to new heights. What he's showing us is that the parties of this world are lame. As he's ushering in his new kingdom, as, as his inaugural um, event comes into the world, he's saying, I have come to do something greater than you've seen in the world. The parties that you're involved with, they're, they're nothing compared to the, to the immeasurable celebration and joy that I am about to usher into the world. I bring a greater celebration. All of this is a setup. 
for what he's going to show us when he turns the water into wine. Furthermore, Jesus is revealing himself as, as the one that the Old Testament uh, taught us about. Listen to Isaiah 25, verse 6. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. It should be on the screen. Isaiah prophesied, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Jesus is, is showing us he's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the feast, other translation says. He's the real master of ceremonies that has come to give us a greater celebration than anything in this world could could give us. Everything that we've been celebrating and, and enjoying, it's but boxed wine and it's running out. He says, I'm coming to take it to the next level. It's better than anything you've ever experienced before. And the picture we get of heaven is an ultimate celebration, a feast with great wine and great food and great company and singing and dancing. And he's saying, that's the kind of celebration I've come to bring into the lives of my people. That's what I have come to do right here. Let me say this. Some of you are reluctant to give your whole life away to Jesus because you think that he's after your fun. He wants to take your fun. What Jesus is showing you is that your fun doesn't even count. (laughs) What you're hanging on to doesn't even compare to the riches of the celebration that he wants. He doesn't want to take your joy from you. He wants to give you a greater joy than you've ever experienced. The stuff you're clinging to is cheap boxed wine. He's saying, I've, I've brought the good stuff. I brought a greater celebration. Everything you're giving yourself to now leaves you a headache the next day. It's lame and it's running out. But the celebration that I have brought takes things to the next level. True celebration is found in knowing and walking with Jesus. Somehow, somewhere, someone decided that to be spiritual means to be dour and just kind of cranky all the time. I mean, really, if I just said, okay, in your mind's eye, picture a really, a really spiritual person, someone who's really dialed into God. What kind of person comes into your mind? Maybe they got a robe on, they're chanting something, they're probably arms crossed like this and just a little edgy so that you know that they're a really righteous person. I think, what? How is that even biblical? Where did that idea come from? As we look at the people who are most in tune with God, who know him the most, most, they're people of great celebration. God's anointed king in the Old Testament, King David, was a man who worshipped exuberantly. His wife got embarrassed because he's dancing in his underwear before the Lord. He is so enthralled with the greatness of God. Jesus steps on the scene and his calling card is to take the party to new heights. He's saying, you you guys don't even party right. Let me, let me show you a greater celebration. I've come to bring a, a greater celebration. Can I just say that's why I want, to plant, I want us to plant a whole bunch of churches in this community that give people a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. That, that my kids don't dread coming to, but actually want to go to church. When I was a kid, I hated going to church. Can I just say that? The pastor wore a dress. I had to work through that. It was odd every week. And I, I don't mean any disrespect, but that was, I'm eight. I'm like, he's in a dress, mom. This is weird. I didn't. And then the pews were so hard and I had a bony backside and you had to sit there for like an hour. And then I remember them talking about how, how heaven was forever. And I, I thought that heaven was church and that church was, heaven was going to be like church. And I thought, if heaven is going to be like church forever and ever and ever, that's just cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, one hour is torture. I, I, no one's got time for that. This for all of eternity. 
But I think what Jesus is showing us is that life with him is but, but an amazing celebration. That the celebrations that, that we see and experience in this world are nothing compared to the celebration that is to come in glory. And I think church should be but a taste of that. And so when you come into this place, I want you to have permission. Have fun. Celebrate. If you're happy, tell your face because you usually don't look like it when you're in here. This ought to be the place of most joy and great joy. And I long for us to be together and not just eat sugary donuts and take God lightly, but to delight so much in God, to feast so much from his word, that this would be real in our lives, that we would enjoy the fellowship, that we would hug one another and celebrate the grace of our God. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin and Satan, and we can rejoice together. That is what heaven will be. Amen? So Jesus is showing us there's a great feast coming, and it gets started right now. He brings us a better celebration, point two, point two. He brings a greater cleansing, a better cleansing. Look at verse six. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. John, the gospel writer, is very intentional with his words. He's not just throwing in details for the sake of throwing in details. Everything he puts in here is very intentional, and Jesus is very intentional in what he's doing. This is not happenstance or circumstance. Oh, there's some jars over there. Use those. No, 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 no. Remember, this is a sign. He's showing us something. And it makes sense if Jesus is going to make some wine, that there are plenty of objects that he could make wine in that are in the room. These people have been celebrating for days. The wine was made in a wineskin. It was then poured into pitchers, and then it was served out of pitchers. What would be lying all around the room as they've been drinking wine for days? Pitchers. Wineskins, bottles, pitchers. It's all in the back room. The recycling truck hasn't come by yet. It's all right there. Wouldn't it be prudent and make the most sense if Jesus is going to make wine? Why not make them in the wine containers? Well, it wasn't just about the wine. He's showing us something. Remember, it's a sign. It says there were six stone jars with 20 or 30 gallons of of capacity in them. And Jesus says to the servants, take those, fill them up. It says that they were cleansing jars for the Jewish ceremony of purification. Now, these six jars, let let me explain this. These jars would have been used by the religious people, the priests, to go through ceremonial washing before the people entered the sanctuary of God. So the idea is that we are sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. These people were sinners. They knew that they were sinners, and they were you know, correct in their assessment. God is holy. Sin does not dwell within the presence of a holy God. And so they had to what? They had to wash. This is a ceremony. They would go through an arduous and ceremonial cleansing process so that they could enjoy the fellowship of God. They could come into the sanctuary of God. They could be in the presence of God. And Jesus, here's these six vessels, and Jesus says, grab those things. Put the, put the water in those things because I want to show you something. Why? What's he showing us? He's showing us something about his ministry. This is his breakthrough, stepping onto the scene. What does Jesus come to do? He says, get the cleansing jars and we're going to do a new work in there. This old ceremonial washing, I've come to do a better washing. The old rituals, the old ceremonies, the people had to come. They had daily and monthly and annual rhythms where they had to go through ongoing purification, ongoing cleansing as they continued to sin. What does Jesus do? He comes and he cleanses us once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. Isaiah 1, though your your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Jesus comes, he gives us a greater cleansing. Seeing the times of the Old Testament 
ceremonies, those are but, a, but, a, but an arrow pointing to me. I am the cleanser. I'm the pot. I'm the one who's come to wash you, and I'm going to fill these with something magical. It's going to be wine that represents my blood. The true cleansing comes from me. And so Jesus comes, and he says, I am the greater washing. I am the one who has come to clean you. He puts himself, as it were, inside the water pitchers, the wine, the symbol of his blood. Did you know Jesus came to wipe your sins clean? Absolutely clean? The idea is this. Our sins are like a stain, and they stay with us. You know this. You felt this. When we sin, that sticks with us. It sticks in our conscience. And the the, the metaphor is it's like a stain that sticks on you, and you can rub it, and you can scrub it, and you can try to feel clean. You can try to relieve your conscience. You can, you can try to separate yourself with distance from your past. You can, you can try to downplay your sin and minimize your sin and redirect your attention from your sin, but it comes with you, and we all know that. And we have all sinned in this room. We have all blown it, and that comes with it. We, we've broken the rules. We've hurt people. We've compromised sexually. We've done things that we ought not to do. We've heard the call of God to do something, and we've chosen comfort over obedience. And that comes with us, and it's, and it's like a stain. And Jesus says, I have come to wash that clean. If you haven't come to Jesus, you need to know he wants to wash you clean. He came that you would have a better celebration, but not only just coming into the party, but coming into the party with a pure, a pure conscience. There's nothing like celebrating with a pure conscience, and that's what he wants to do for you. He wants to wipe your sins clean. Did you come with a guilty conscience this morning? Jesus wants to wipe you clean. Furthermore, if you have received Jesus, are you still hanging on to, to guilt from the past? Are you still hanging on to resentment over things that were done? Do you still replay the things that you've done in the past and, and feel shame and guilt? You're holding on to something that Jesus died to take away from you. Do you understand that? He paid a great price to wipe your stain clean. Don't hang on to that which he came to wash away. Jesus came to wipe away our sins once and for all. He says, get those pictures. Let me show you a greater cleansing. He came to give us a better cleansing. So Jesus comes to give us a better ceremony or a better celebration. He comes to give us a better cleansing. Let me show you the last one. Jesus comes to give us a greater joy, a greater joy. Here we get to the wine part. Buckle up. Verse 8, it says, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Let me press pause right there. This is the moment Jesus turns the water into wine. I don't think he turned it into grape juice. Why? Because it doesn't say grape juice. What's it say? Wine. Well, their wine wasn't really wine. Yes, it was. The Bible word for wine is wine. Wine is wine, and water is water, and they were drinking, and Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, let me give you a little Bible 101 on wine, okay? This is a little wine theology. By and large, the biblical view of wine is that it, it is a symbol of and represents God's blessing and joy in the world. Now, for those of you who are greatly concerned, the Bible is very explicit about drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin, okay? Proverbs 23 uh, says, uh, don't be among drunkards or you will come to poverty. It says, strong drink will bite you like a snake. The New Testament says, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And so drunkenness, being drunk, getting drunk, living drunk, is not a godly and God-honoring way to celebrate and, and use wine. That's a misuse of a good thing. So a lot of people choose to abstain because they're given a drunkenness. That's a good and God-honoring way to approach it. Um, but take sin out of the equation. God has given us wine as a good gift. It's a sign of blessing and prosperity and his love toward his people. Psalm 104 verse 15 says that God brings forth wine to gladden the hearts of man. According to the Bible, where does wine come from? God. Why does he give it to us? To gladden our hearts. In the Old Testament, when a nation or a community didn't have wine, it was seen as a curse from God. It was a judgment. You have no wine? God must be disappointed in you. And when they had a, a prevalence of wine, it was seen as God's prosperity and God's blessing on them. When, when Isaac was blessing Jacob right before he dies, these are the patriarchs of our faith. One of his very last prayers for his son as he prays for him is, Lord, would you give him an abundance of wine? <laughs> That's his prayer. Why? Because it symbolizes God's blessing, God's prosperity, and God's joy in his son's Life And so, so in this moment, Jesus is showing us a sign, remember? Yes, he wants the party to go to the next level. Yes, he's blessing these people, but he's showing us something more than that. He's saying that, that I have come to give you a greater and better joy. A greater and better joy. This is the very first sign of his ministry, and he says, I'm going to give you a better wine. I've come to give you better joy. The very end of his earthly ministry in John chapter 15, one of the very last things that he says, he says, I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. The book ends of Jesus' life and ministry are demonstrations of gifting us joy. To walk with Jesus is to experience a joy that's unlike anything in this world. And I, I think that's the main point of this here. Not only does Jesus give us joy, he gives us a kind of joy that's utterly different from every other kind of joy in this world. Here's what I mean. Every other joy in this world starts to lose its luster with time. Have you noticed that? I remember going to the ocean for the first time. And I was so struck in awe. The smell of the salt and the breeze and the vastness. And it was water forever. And I was a kid and I ran into the ocean with my, my clothes on. With my parents screaming at me. No, get back here. We got a swimsuit. I'm like, swimsuit? It's the ocean. Blah! You know? It, 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 a thrilling experience. Now I've been to the ocean, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 times. And it's beautiful. I love it. But it's not what it was. You know what I mean? I remember the first time I ever drove a vehicle by myself. Just turned 16 and left the house in my old man's truck, and I thought, this is the best moment of my life. Do you remember that moment? I thought, this is freedom. This is life. I mean, it, I, can, I can still picture the moment. I remember the colors. It was so thrilling and exhilarating. I drove here this morning. I didn't even realize I was driving. I mean, I... <laughs> I was half asleep, drinking coffee, praying, trying to get my heart right for this moment. I, I parked. I don't even remember getting from there to here. It just, over time, it sort of loses its punch, right? You go to Disney World, day one is epic and amazing. If you go every day for a week, you want to stab yourself in the eye with a pencil. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's like, get me home, right? The things of this world, the, the joys, they, they fade with time. You can have steak and lobster every single night. Okay, maybe that doesn't fade. That's always good. That's always good. Maybe on day 412, you go, yeah, right? 
the choicest of wine in this world loses its taste with time. But look what Jesus is showing us. Look what the person says. Look at, look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus brings the good stuff last. You know what this means for us? It means the best is yet to come. It means the best is yet to come. As I, as I get older, it is true that the shiny things of this life just become a little less impressive. It's just a part of life, right? The things that used to be so exhilarating and thrilling, it just it's hard to impress me anymore. You get to be Steve's age, I just don't know what's impressive. I mean, love you, brother. Love you, brother. It's just true. But Jesus gets better with time, doesn't he? I shared with you guys last week, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. I went to a Bible study, chasing a girl, met Jesus, changed my life. Great story. But in that moment, I mean, the, I just remember being so glad that I didn't have to go to hell. I mean, that was that was the thrilling thing. I don't have to go to hell. I was super thankful that Jesus saved me, and it was wonderful. But 18 years later, Jesus has only gotten better for me. It's not that I'm not thankful for not going to hell anymore. I'm still really thankful for that. But it's that I know Jesus, and I love him. And even as the shiny things of the world have have gotten less impressive, Jesus only continues to get more impressive to me. At one point, he was the way, the truth, and the life. Now he's, he's, he's my way. He's my truth. He's my life. I love Jesus. I'm more excited to see him face to face. He's more amazing to me now, 18 years after walking with him, than he was 16 years ago. Do you see how that works? He's the good wine. He gets better with time. The best is yet to come. And, and here's what keeps me going, even as my Facebook thread just makes the world look like it blew out of the oceans and we are in uncharted territory in the history of all humanity and everything's going nuts and, and all that. I realize that, no, 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 I still, have, I still have an optimistic view because I know the best is yet to come. That even the worst of atrocities, Jesus is going to return and he's going to undo all the wrongs. Furthermore, you guys, we're going to see Jesus. Do you realize that? If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you're going to see this guy. And the joy in that moment that will fill you when all the pain is gone, all the emotional mess is gone, there, there is no more guilt, it's all been wiped clean, and you see him, there will be such a joy that will flood you and last for eternity that will make the, the most amazing, exhilarating moment of your life pale in comparison. The best is yet to come, and even for you elderly saints, the best is yet to come. The best days are ahead of us. That's why the Christian has an optimistic view of life. Not because we're naive and just, oh, you know, think about positive stuff, not the bad stuff. No, to know that Jesus is going to redeem all of it. And we are going to see he is the good wine. He is the better wine. He is the wine that Jesus brings last, and the best is yet to come. I'm out of time. Let me read one more verse, and we'll use it in the sermon. Verse 11, it says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. How did the disciples respond? They believed. They believed, and because they believed, the whole trajectory of their lives changed. 
they worship Jesus, serve Jesus, love Jesus, and give themselves to the mission of Jesus for the ends of their day until all but one of them dies because of their faith in Jesus. It changed everything because they believed in Jesus. I am more convinced than ever that if we just believe Jesus is who he said he is, so many of the other things are going to work themselves out in our lives. If we behold Jesus and and allow him the place in our heart that he says that he is, everything else will work itself out in our lives. The response to viewing Jesus' signs is to believe in him. Let me ask you, have you believed in Jesus for the first time? Maybe you came this morning, and and I want to make this ask every week in this series, because that's the point of this whole book, that you may believe, John says. That's why he wrote the thing. So do you believe? Maybe you came here this morning, and you see this crowd. Maybe everyone's here because they're just nice people. Maybe everyone's here because they're just religious people, and their parents went to church, and so they're coming to church, and, and we're all just here networking, just building our social network. Maybe, or maybe the people that are in this room that are hyped about Jesus are here because we have seen the work of a living God in our lives. Maybe we're here because we believe Jesus brings a greater cleansing. Maybe we're here because we believe that Jesus gives a greater joy, and we've tasted it, and we love him, and we worship him. And I would contend to you that that's why we're in this room. And I would invite you, if you haven't believed Jesus, would you believe Jesus? Would you trust him with all your heart? Furthermore, if you have believed in Jesus, do you believe everything he says about himself? Do you believe that he's the greater celebration? Are you still messing around with the world thinking it's going to satisfy you? It's not. It's not. Jesus comes and he says, your parties are lame. (laughs) Real celebration is found in walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus, There is no greater experience than to know Jesus, and I want us to to embrace that, to celebrate as a church, to feast from his word, to delight in it, and let that bring us tremendous celebration in that place. Do you believe that he's the greater cleansing? Would you let go of the past? Would you let go of your feelings of guilt and and uh, uh, self-doubt and um, self-judgment? Jesus has come to cleanse you. He's the greater cleansing, and he is our greater joy. The best is yet to come. Do you believe that? It'll change your whole outlook on life. Because you know the brightest days for us are but in the future. Jesus brings the good stuff last. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no one like you. Jesus, we celebrate that you've come into this world. And, and we were fooling around at little parties thinking we were hot stuff. And you have revealed such a greater reality. We are eternal creatures created for an eternal God to worship you eternity, or in, in, eternally and in eternity and in your presence Oh God, thank you that you have come to give us a greater celebration. Help us to experience that. Thank you that you've come and to, to cleanse us from our sins. You give a greater cleansing than any religion or any ceremony. Jesus, you are the one who wipes our sins clean. And Jesus, thank you that the best wine is yet to hit the table. That we can look forward to that future day at the wedding feast of the Lamb when we will be with you and you will crack the bottle and we will feast and we will dance and we will hug and we will celebrate your redemption in the world and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.